Hello again, and welcome to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Historically Old and COVID-19. The date, April 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. Quote, should any political party attempt to abolish social security, unemployment insurance, and eliminate labor laws and farm programs, you would not hear of that party again in our political history, unquote. Dwight D. Eisenhower, writing in 1954, quote, retirement is like a long vacation in Las Vegas. The goal is to enjoy it to the fullest, but not so fully that you run out of money, unquote. Jonathan Clements, British author and scriptwriter, writing in 2020. Quote, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Unquote. Thomas Hobbes, the author of The Leviathan, writing in 1651. According to the book of Genesis, Methuselah was the son of Enoch, the father of Lamech, and the grandfather of Noah. Also, according to the Bible, Methuselah died at the age of 969 years. According to the legendary account in the Kajiki, Emperor Jimu of Japan was born on February 13th, 711 BCE, the first day of the first month of the Chinese calendar. He then died on April 9th, 585 BCE, or roughly 126 years old at his passing. Now, both of these figures are out of legend, but we can believe that there was a Pepe II of Egypt at one point. Pepe II was a pharaoh of the 6th dynasty in Egypt's Old Kingdom, and he reigned from circa 2278 BCE. He succeeded to the throne at age 6. And if the hieroglyphics bear out, this would put him at roughly 100 years old at the end of his reign. It's a pretty suspect number, but at least it's within the realm of possibility. And why is it suspect? Because even another contemporary of Pepe's, Sargon the Great of Acadia, I love that name, by the way, Sargon, so cool. It was even used in an original Star Trek episode. Well, Sargon was reputed to have reigned less than 50 years, putting the best guess at his age of around 70 when he died. But no other Egyptian monarch, from Narmer to Cleopatra VII, yes, the one with Caesar and Antony, was as long-lived as Pepe. And some, such as Tutankhamun, who lived some, well, roughly 3,300 years ago, died at the age of 18. Since Pepe was about the only one that they ascribed such a long life to, it is logical to assume that Pepe really was 100 years old at the time of his death. Now, the first emperor of Rome, Augustus, he lived to 75. But for the common Roman, life was a bit more brief. Life expectancy at birth was 25 years during the Roman Empire. And though Augustus was indeed granted a longer life by being spared, well, let's say toiling in the fields, or due to his gender, avoiding the perils of childbirth, short lifespans were not just the province of the peasants. His close friend Marcus Agrippa, a vigorous and strong man, died at the age of 51. 
Predating Agrippa, Alexander of Macedon died at the age of 33. And of course, these weren't violent deaths. They just died. And of course, the trials of childbirth claim the life of Julius Caesar's daughter, Julia, at the age of 22. Lifespans improved slightly in medieval times, but not really significantly. The first Holy Roman Emperor, Charles, later Charlemagne, would reach the age of 70, an ancient age of the time. But this lifespan was not to be for his subjects. Life expectancy at birth reached roughly 33 years in the year 800 by the Middle Ages, and the average lifespan of males born in land-holding families in England was recorded at 31.3 years. And again, the most significant danger was surviving childhood. Once children reached the age of 10, their life expectancy would automatically expand. And for those who survived to 25, the remaining life expectancy was all the way to 23.3 years of additional lifespan. Not as old as Charlemagne, but much older than your average contemporaries of the time. One thing to note about these age descriptions, if you were born in any of these pre-modern eras and survived childhood, again, your odds of living past the average age lifespans were much greater. The simple fact was that mothers and children were highly vulnerable. And yet, this does not change my initial point, as noted by Hobbes above. Life was short. Even without the advent of the Civil War, an American born in 1840 would have been 41 years of lifespan time. This figure raises to 55 years in the early 1900s. And though I noted that historical subjects such as Augustus, Marcus Agrippa, Alexander of Macedon, and Charlemagne all died from sickness or ill health, not through murder, obviously homicides and murders have a lot to do with these short lifespans. For example, during the Thirty Years' War fought in Central Europe between 1618 and 1648, an estimated 450,000 died to combat fatalities. But yet, it was the disruption of the war in creating famine and disease that accounted for another 4 million deaths. For so much of human history, these numbers didn't really fundamentally change. In Stuart-era England, even with the plague of 1666, life expectancy was around 35, not dissimilar to the 41 of 1840s America, or that an American in 1910 would have about 10 more years. But from that point, in 1910 to 1970, just a 60-year period, life expectancy grew to 71, a 40% increase. And also note, during that period, World War I, the influenza pandemic of the 1920s, the Great Depression, and World War II all occurred in this period. This massive lifespan was due primarily to medical innovations with antibiotics being at the center. And I would add to that, the banishment of famine as agricultural innovations have taken hold. But for now, let's just focus in on the medicine. Here are two names that are primarily and historically unknown and yet were an incredible effect on the history of mankind. Alexander Fleming and Paul Ehrlich, who pioneered differentiations with medicine, especially antibiotics. According to the Society for Microbiology, it wasn't until the late 19th century that scientists began to observe antibacterial chemicals 
in action. Paul Ehrlich, a German physician, noted that certain chemical dyes colored some bacterial cells, but not others. And he concluded that, according to this principle, it must be possible to create substances that can kill certain bacteria selectively without harming other cells. In 1909, he discovered that a chemical called, and please bear with me, arsifenamine was an effective treatment for syphilis. This science became the first modern antibiotic. The word antibiotics was used over 30 years later by the Ukrainian-American inventor and microbiologist Selman Waxen, who discovered over 20 antibiotics in his lifetime. Now, Alexander Fleming was, it seems, well, maybe a bit disorderly in his work, and therefore he accidentally discovered penicillin. Upon returning from a holiday in Suffolk in 1928, he noted that a fungus, Penicillium notatum, had contaminated a cultural plate of Staphylococcus bacteria he had accidentally left uncovered. The fungus had created bacteria-free zones wherever it grew on the plate. Fleming then isolated and grew and grew the mold in pure culture, and he found that penotatum proved highly effective, even at low concentrations, preventing Staphylococcus growth, even when diluted 800 times, and was less toxic than the disinfectants used at the time. Today, the widespread use of antibiotics has caused other issues, which which we all know about, and the concern that somehow we're creating superbugs. But our world would be a different place without them. Consider that before antibiotics, 90% of children with bacterial meningitis died. Among those children who lived, most had severe and lasting disabilities, from deafness to mental disabilities. Strep throat was at times a fatal disease, and ear infections sometimes spread from the ear to the brain, causing severe problems. From tuberculosis to pneumonia to whooping cough, other severe conditions were caused by aggressive bacteria reproduced with extraordinary speed and led to severe illness and often death. Remember how I noted earlier that children were the most vulnerable in society, that if somehow you made it to adulthood, you could add an extraordinary amount of years to your life? That's assuming you made it to adulthood. Antibiotics is that secret sauce that enables our lifespans. And again, other scientific innovations, especially that around farming and agriculture. And finally, though wars are still fought, the percentage of actual populations affected by these conflicts is a tiny fraction of what the world experienced before 1945. Prior to that, wars were not something that was fought over there. No, wars were something that was fought right here for everyone. Today, life expectancy within the U.S. for an adult male is 76 years. For a female, 81. Or roughly, cumulatively, lifespans from birth are projected at 78.8 in 2021. And again, this would be using non-COVID or a fully vaccinated group. But just think about that number and think about the incredible leap forward in lifespans that mankind has made. That is double and then some, the longest lifespan of any point in the history of mankind any time before 1910. 
even the most affluent, successful societies, whether they be Roman era or Han China or Mughal India, none of them had anything close to what we're talking, roughly 80 years. So let's talk about today. According to the World Meters website, in 2019, 2,854,000 people were resident deaths registered within the United States. This is about 15,600 more deaths than in 2018, and this represents as a total less than 1% of the population of the United States. Now, according to the latest data from the Center for Disease Control, 545,000 died from COVID. But where this number does not tell the whole story is in the age ranges of COVID fatalities. Of these COVID deaths, 17% were in the 45 to 65 age cohort, but over 80% were in the over 65 categories. That leaves just 2.6% of Americans under the age of 45 who died from this disease. And of the total of over 65 fatalities, 41% are from the over 85 categories. This demographic seat change is historically incredible because as recently as 1930, there were only 6 million total Americans above the age of 65, as opposed to over 45 million today. From the inception of this disease in the winter of 2020 to the present day, April 2021, the one consistent factor of COVID is that it is a threat to seniors, but not worse than the seasonal flu to anyone else. One question keeps coming up because it gets to the heart of the coronavirus pandemic. How does the number of deaths from all causes in 2020 compare to 2019 and 2018? The preliminary death count for 2020 is 3.1 million deaths, or an 11% increase over 2019. Now compare that to the barely registered growth of the previous year. And the impact of COVID therefore becomes evident. But according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University, more than 280,000 Americans have died due to COVID-19. But note the difference between this number and the 545,000 touted by the media. In other words, the half million number contains nearly half of fatalities that would have occurred otherwise and therefore are not actually COVID, but rather related to diseases that are evident within old age. And I would add to that another number that we cannot yet know, but will in two years' time. I predict we will see a decline in total fatalities in the U.S. during 2021 and 2022 from 2019 ranges. I'm excluding the COVID peak year of 2020. So keep this in mind, if in 2019, 2.8 million Americans died, that that number will be less in 2021 and in 2022. The reason I predict this is because the cohort of deaths is so centered on age and gets even worse when the over 85 groups are included. Many people who who would have lived through 2020 were not for COVID would have passed in 2021 or 2022. In other words, COVID costs them one or maybe two years of their lifespan. Now, as I talk about these statistics, I want to be clear that I fully understand the impact and the meaning 
behind these numbers. About 25 years ago, I lost a parent to cancer. This parent was 60, so roughly 21 years less than the normal age now. So by any standard, a younger person. That is why I take no death lightly as I provide these statistics. And please understand that I know that these people that I'm talking about were mothers and fathers, grandparents, sons and daughters, and brothers and sisters. So even though we fully understand that we are talking about people, real lives, people with names and their own personal histories, but it is incumbent for us to understand these numbers, to understand these statistics, because vast economic and societal decisions should not be made purely based on anecdotal evidence. It is upon these numbers, in these statistics, that great societal decisions are made, as was done in 2020. The lockdown had an immeasurable effect on our economic and emotional well-being of this nation. And we need to delve within these numbers to understand the justifications of these policies. But these lockdowns and the lockdowns themselves were not done to protect just the most vulnerable in our society, those in the upper age cohorts. They were employed on the entirety of our entire world, despite the obvious facts, the obvious science routinely cited and then routinely ignored when faced with political expediency. Am I saying there was a correlation between the lockdowns, let's say, and wishing to protect the votes of the elderly? No, not overtly. In Florida, for example, Governor Ron DeSantis did not go total lockdown despite having the single largest cohort of elderly voters in any state. But it is worth a discussion that the one salient fact that we knew one year ago and still know today was not the most critical determinant of public policy. That is protecting the vulnerable. That is what Ron DeSantis did in Florida, but it was not done elsewhere. And here I turn to Anthony Fauci, who, by the way, at 80 years old, fell into the at-risk cohort, as did the president of 2020 and the one we have today. Now, there are four problems with Fauci, but only two are under his direct control. Once upon a time, ABC television stumbled upon a ratings juggernaut called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The program appeared once per week and enjoyed stellar ratings. But the geniuses at ABC programming thought that five times a week would be five times better. Because of saturation, ratings at the show plummeted. Saturation, that is Fauci. Seeing him as part of the COVID narrative was okay. He was both informative and authoritative in almost a folksy fashion. But seeing him all the time, everywhere, gave the impression, and perhaps conveys the reality, that a doctor of infectious diseases was running the entire show. And Fauci could have toned down his appearances, but clearly he did love it. The other issue directly with Fauci was his decision, often seemingly unilateral, to tell the American people what he thought they could hear, what he thought they could bear. The reason his popularity soared was not that our citizenry thought that he was going to sugarcoat the truth or make it easy for us. No, the reason he was popular is because we thought he was leveling with us. We thought he was bringing us the straight facts 
of the situation on the ground. And as adults, that was what we needed to hear. Of course, there is the essential role that Fauci should have played. And that role was one of advisor, not decision maker. As a doctor of infectious disease, a Fauci policy is simple. Humans are carriers, so keep them apart. One of the great strengths and challenges with our entire medical system is specialty. If one, let's say, has sinusitis, then the nose surgeon says, do surgery. To so many within the medical world, everything is a nail and they are the hammer. And one needs to discern that sometimes things are not nails. Maybe that sinusitis is due because the nasal passages were clogged due to inflammation from certain kinds of foods. Then maybe a gastrologist would be the one to talk to. The nose surgeon may not consider this. In other words, you have to look at a holistic solution within health and a holistic solution within the policy of meeting a pandemic. But that's not what happened. What happened was a doctor of infectious diseases was allowed to dictate policy. Now think of that doctor of infectious medicine faced with the prospect of a massive society that cannot function or is emotionally stunted by keeping them apart. That is not their purview. That is not their experience. That is not their knowledge set. Fauci should have been positioned as the infection guy, alongside others, including maybe psychiatrists commenting on the mental challenges of lockdowns, and vaccine specialists discussing how herd immunity really works, and how about other infection specialists. But Fauci became the guy, which is another fault, not of Fauci, but of the decision makers themselves. The ability to balance all of the needs, all of the science, is why Florida, and not New York, and certainly not California, is the success story of COVID and the concept of federalism itself. And I would extend that out even further. One of the things that the left wishes to do is to centralize authority into a few key areas. The concept of federalism is is to keep that authority dispersed among 50 different entities. And this is what happens. If centralized authority had been in the way that so many wish to see it, there would have been one policy and that policy would have been mass lockdown. So the successes of places like Florida would never have been seen. And so that is what we saw with COVID, a policy that imposed a whole series of lockdowns in some states, not Florida, in order to protect a single vulnerable cohort among the population. But COVID is ending. Thank God for capitalism and those those uh, pharma companies that were so vilified by the likes of Bernie Sanders, they're ending up being the real hero in all this, that by May, we should be fully vaccinated. And we can see COVID, or at least COVID of this level, of 2020 levels, in the rearview mirror. But let's not be too complacent. There is another issue with the elderly that's coming up, and it is not going away. Now let's get back to the issue of an aging population. This demographic shift is not just one for the United States. With the triumph of many of our counterterrorism measures and, thanks to Donald Trump, Israel's new peace with Sunni states throughout the Middle East, the threat of Islamist terrorism has been somewhat minimized, leaving China, China, as our greatest adversary in the world today. Yet China has a major demographic issue that is just now coming to the fore. Milton Ezradi, 
writing for Forbes in March of 2021, notes, quote, because of China's one-child policy, employed in the 1970s, the absolute number of working-age people stagnated. In 2020, UN demographers estimated China's working-age population was no higher than it was at the turn of the century and constituted a smaller part of its overall adult population, as the number of dependent retirees has risen to some 17% of that population. China has slipped from boasting nine workers for every retiree in 1978 to just over five in 2020, only slightly better ratio than the United States, unquote. Time Magazine adds, quote, by 2050, 330 million Chinese will be over the age of 65. Can you imagine that? Remember all of those statistics that I cited earlier about lifespans. We will have more people just in China alone, just over the age of 65, that had existed on the planet for the first 3,000 years of human existence. It's unbelievable. Good news, perhaps for property owners in Hein, but dire news for all the prospects of the world's second largest economy and for those around the world who rely on it. And even accounting for the United States' focus on the elderly and China's one-child policy, this is a worldwide phenomenon. According to World Population Prospects 2019 United Nations study, by 2050, one in six, one in six people in the world will be over the age of 65, up from one in 11 in 2019. That's almost double. All societies in the world are in the midst of longevity revolution. Some are at their early stages, such as the Middle East, and some are more advanced. But all will pass through this extraordinary transition in which the chance of surviving to age 65 rises from less than 50% in in the 1890s to more than 90% at present in countries with the highest life expectancies. What is more, the proportion of adult life spent beyond age 65 increased from less than a fifth in the 1960s to a quarter or more in most developed countries today. Now these policy issues are staggering. Let's start off with one very simple one. People over the age of 65 need a lot, a lot more health care than any other cohort. And that's clearly, as the body ages, it needs more service. But and this is what's really interesting, is, is that that same group is also often within the United States and in other places in the developed world, a non-productive person. They aren't paying taxes through their employers anymore. So just as is when this age cohort begins to take resources out of the system, they are simultaneously no longer in a position to add in. Now the obvious rejoinder to that point is very simple. They have been paying in. They've been paying in for nearly 40 years of work. But here is the big difference. In 1935, when the original retirement age was set at 65, the average lifespans were a little bit beyond that. In other words, the number of retirees was not at the levels that they are today. Not even close. And one other factor. In the mid-1960s, the passage of Medicare as part of Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society program also meant that simultaneously, as Social Security needs to be paid in to support the elderly, now a massive health care entitlement 
was added aboard. Finally, you also have massive state and local pensions, and we're going to be looking one in relation to California teachers that show that simply put, the amount of money put into the system will not match at some point in the very near future the amount of money that will need to be taken out of the system. Now, for anybody who's truly interested in this subject and wants to know a lot more, I have a book that I strongly recommend. It's written by two authors, Lawrence J. Kotlikoff and Scott Burns, and it's called The Coming Generational Storm. Quote, like it or not, ready or not, everyone reading this book will experience the greatest demographic change in human history. In less than a century, the United States will move being forever young to forever old. In 1900, the age distribution of our population was similar to what characterized all human history. It was a pyramid, widest at the bottom and narrowing with each successive layer. By 2000, the age distribution was a very different shape. The pyramid was gone. In 2000, the profile looked like a house with a very tall roof. But by 2030, just nine years from now, it's starting to look more like a barrel. A very straight barrel with a, with a slightly wider point in the very middle. Unquote. One of the many Don Quixote-esque windmills, which I desire to tilt, is around the age of 70. This is the figure to which, were I made czar for a day, I would raise all Social Security, all public pensions, and all Medicare recipient eligibilities. The age of 70, that would be the official age of retirement and the age in which those elderly could begin to collect the Social Security, the public pensions, and be eligible for Medicare benefits. Now, given that seniors vote and that they are a highly sought-after political faction, I have a better chance of succeeding Francis's Pope than this sensible and straightforward legislation will ever pass. Much less pass, it won't even be proposed. And yet, given the outlays of all the funding around retirement and medical treatment for the elderly, it will have to be addressed. Like the U.S. federal and state debt of over $31 trillion, it is not going away and it is not changed. Now, I get it. If you're aged, let's say, 55 to 62, there's simply no way you would vote for something like this. And that cohort is millions of people. But what about all those people under 55? Let's say 35 to 55. Well, and I get that too. This concept of raising uh, any kind of retirement age is a little like the stupid games me and my buddies in high school would play. This was a game in which we would open the car door and invite one of us to, to uh, ride in the car. And then the minute that they got really close to the door, when they got near, we would just drive away and drive maybe like 10 feet and then watch if they would try to run and leap into the car. It was dangerous and stupid, but it was actually kind of fun. In other words, what I'm saying is, as you get close to something and then having it taken away, is this is a bitter pill to swallow. So the people who are going to be eligible in the next five years certainly going to vote for it. But the problem is people even eligible in the next 20 probably wouldn't vote for this either. As one can see from my photo on my website or Twitter feed on my videos, I am not that far from collecting myself after paying in for decades. But as our current president would say, Come on, man. 
the issue with making our government solvent is not about us, but our children. When I say there will be nothing left for them, I mean there will be nothing left for them. But we are up against people voting against their self-interest, even when their interest is at odds with their own children. Now, Steve Chapman, writing in Slate all the way back in 2003, 18 years ago, summed up one of the many anti-boomer belief systems. And Steve Chapman, when he wrote this, was a boomer himself. Quote, Boomers have gotten our way ever since we arrived in this world, and the onset of gray hair, bifocals, and arthritis is not going to moderate our unswerving self-indulgence. We are the same people, after all, who forced the lowering of the drinking age when we were young so we could drink and forced it back up when we got older so our kids couldn't. That's true. On top of that, we're used to the best of everything and plenty of it. We weren't dubbed the me generation because we neglect our own needs, Junior. If politicians think the current geezers are greedy, they ain't seen nothing yet, unquote. But this is not just about boomers. I mean, let's be clear about that. My Generation X people seem about as inclined to raise the age of entitlements as the boomers do. Yet consider this salient fact. That was simply not the case even 18 years ago when Chapman wrote his sort of amusing uh, anecdotes. According to Teaching Certification's website, a teacher in the California teacher system is eligible retirement at 55. Given that teachers' jobs are not as onerous as, let's say, mine workers, farmers, long-haul drivers, or even distribution workers, we can add two years to their median age or put them to 85. If that teacher starts their job at 23, that is a total of 32 years of work, And that 32 is interesting because you can't be eligible in California until you do 30 years and 30 years of retirement. So let me repeat that. 32 years of work, 30 years of retirement. No system, not even the capitalistic fueled miracle that is the American economy can tolerate workers being paid one year of non-production for every year of work. But it isn't even an apples-to-apples comparison because, as I noted before, the elderly need far greater health benefits than the younger. So a one-to-one ratio is actually not one-to-one at all. It is a losing ratio. And again, who's going to lose on that? You take a look at my photo. Probably not me. There should be enough funds in there for at least another 20 or 30 years. But my kids and my future grandchildren they're screwed. Though Americans do not have to support a Methuselah for 800 years or even a Pepe II for 50 years of retirement. Remember, if he ruled to 100 in our society, he would get, uh, that would make him eligible for 35 years of retirement unless Pepe had decided to abdicate the throne of Egypt and become a teacher and move to California. Then he could retire at 55 and enjoy 45 years of retirement. Now, Fortunately, they don't have to face those kinds of odds, but our current system still cannot endure. If significant changes are not made, one will see our lifespans begin to decline through lack of supporting resources, though nothing like that experienced by humanity for the first 4,950 years of our history. This is Bell Avis. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the Conservative Historian Podcast.